This past fall, before the NBA season began, the Cleveland Cavaliers introduced this man, Sean Peebles. I know, you're going just like I did. Who in the world is Sean Peebles? Sean Peebles is a lifelong Cleveland fan and the new PA announcer for the Cavs this year. He has been the guy who, for 41 regular season home games and likely a dozen playoff home games, will introduce LeBron James. Now, you know who LeBron James is, right? They call him the King, King James. He's the greatest basketball player in the world. That made me think, what would happen if during the introductions, before he ever got to the players, Mr. Peebles just walked out to midcourt and he just announced to the crowd, I would like to introduce myself. And I'd like to spend a few minutes telling you about how amazing I am at broadcasting and announcing people's names. And would you all join me in a round of applause for how good I am at what I do, introducing the players. If that happened, most of us would think this guy's sort of lost his marbles, and we'd think to ourselves, you've got a seriously like distorted view of your role in all of this. We did not come to see you. We came to see the king. We came to see LeBron play. And yet, in today's text, we see a scenario that mirrors this. But it features a different announcer and a different superstar. The one who does the introductions is John the Baptist, and the celebrity worth celebrating is Jesus. John is getting pressed by his entourage to react to the success of Jesus' ministry, which was, frankly, cutting into their attendance numbers. And John the Baptist reiterates to his friends, his disciples, something he said earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the light, not me. In John 1, 26 and 27, Jesus, uh, John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John today with a look at John the Baptist and how he managed to keep a healthy, eternal perspective, a Christ-centered perspective in life, in spite of the fact that the circumstances of his life were not always going to benefit him, and the culture in which he lived was not all that dissimilar to ours in that people expected him to continue to succeed at the level he'd continued to succeed at previously. The Gospel of John shares with us once again that there is a there is something that is taking place in the heart of one of Jesus' followers, and that is that John was able to maintain a focus and a life that is centered around God. And in our case, we would understand, most Christians know how difficult it is in our world to remember that our lives ultimately aren't about us. For all of the hard times that I've seen people give Rick Warren on line, the first words of his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, are, it is not about you. And I think that's right. Today we're going to see how John the Baptist remembered this and kept this healthy perspective. Well, some context first for our message. All right, John 
was having his ministry devolve, descend, uh, shrink at the same time Jesus was getting traction. You see in the text it says after this, and it's speaking of Jesus' move into the Judean territories and in the wilderness from his time in Jerusalem where he'd had this encounter as we studied last week and the weeks before. Last week it was with the Pharisee Nicodemus. And now Jesus has moved on to another area where there was a big body of water and he began to baptize. And, and, you know, this is interesting because if you're like me, you you may have wondered why would Jesus be baptizing. And so even as we look at the context here of where Jesus is, I want to take a quick side road and uh, learn what we can know and understand about baptism from this passage. It's the words mentioned three different times. The purpose of baptism in a Christian sense is that the water would symbolize the, the sacrifice of Christ, the cleansing of our souls from sin. And so baptism in Jesus' life here wouldn't have meant that because the people wouldn't have understood nor would they likely have accepted any notion that Jesus was headed for uh, his cross to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's only in the connection with John the Baptist and Jesus' willingness to be baptized by John that we recognize that their baptism, what they were both practicing, was a baptism of repentance. If you're wondering what that means in a practical way, it's that the people were saying in recognition of hearing what Jesus and before him what John were communicating, they would say, my heart is being brought to life. I want to know. I want to turn towards God. I have been running away from him. And it was this, it was this public act of saying, I need the Lord. I don't even know what that means right now, but I just know that I have to turn and prepare myself for something that God's going to do in my life. We also, by virtue of the text, see that at least these baptisms were uh, seemingly, the implication seems to be that these baptisms were done by full immersion because John says water was plentiful there. For us Presbyterians, and we're a transdenominational church, you don't need a body of water to do baptisms, just you know, an eyedropper, really. Um, That'll suffice. Uh, we don't do the whole volume thing. Now, I will say this. We do um, baptize all of our adults by immersion here at Prism Church because we do think it's a terrific symbol of the total cleansing of Christ in the soul. And we want you to be able to join a Baptist church later without having to go through the whole process again. <laughs> um, because we think Baptist churches are terrific. And so... Uh, but if you get sprinkled or poured here, they're going to make you get dunked. So it's really a public service more as much as anything else and, a, and, a, and a really a nod to Christian unity. Um, but before someone gets kind of sort of geeked up about immersion baptism, what you need to know is that there is nothing in Scripture that indicates that the mode of baptism is commanded. Um, because things are done a certain way in Scripture doesn't always mandate the repeating of that method. For example, in the New Testament, uh, we're given uh, directions on communion and we're giving examples of communion being celebrated and it's always with wine. And yet our church offers a grape juice alternative. 
and a lot of other churches I know of don't use wine at all, even though wine is used in the Bible, and it's a terrific metaphor of the bitter sweetness of the sacrifice of Christ. The importance of the sacrament of communion isn't the alcohol content of wine. It's, the, it's the, that it symbolizes the blood of Jesus. Another example would be when the apostles, after Judas hung himself and Jesus resurrected from the dead, they decided all on their own, we need a 12th team member, and they cast lots to see who that would be, and the lot fell to Matthias. This is clearly not how we are told to practice leadership development in the local church. So just because it's done doesn't necessarily mean that we're to mirror that in our practice. But what I really want to point you to in the introductory verses here are, is the parenthetical in verse 24, where we are told that John had not yet been put in prison. Uh, this is what they'd say in movie previews. You know, if you, you watch a review before the movie's released. Spoiler alert, um, things are not going to go well for John in this life. And this is the first indication that he, he's headed for tough, tough times. In John's case, what you see him doing is focusing his hope on God's plan for his life. John knew that his purpose was to announce Christ and he managed not to lose his perspective about who God was, who he was, and who everyone else in his life were, were related to this ministry and this mission. And today we're going to look at four practical ways that John was able to faithfully live for the glory of Jesus and to maintain a healthy and peace-giving perspective about life. Two of these principles are going to come from John the Baptist himself because verses 22 through 30 are John's experience, John the Baptist's experience. The, the verses beyond that, uh, 31 through 36, are the Apostle John's commentary on what has taken place. So two of our principles are going to come from John the Baptist and two are going to come from the Apostle John and we're going to begin with John's first, which is, if you want to have an eternal perspective, if you want to maintain a healthy view of life and your role in it and who God is in relationship to you and others, you have to remember the graces of God. Verses 25 through 27 says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. In this particular section, we see John's disciples having an argument about purification. This makes sense. They were Jews doing a baptism and getting into an argument with somebody about the relationship of a water purification rite and in the midst of this, they begin to discern that their church numbers are shrinking, <laughs> that their movement is shrinking in size. And I have to tell you, religious movements hate when their numbers shrink. Uh, this is just an old practice. When we see something getting smaller, there's something that makes us get a little wiggy. John answers this pressure being put on him with a really brilliant insight, insight 
into life. And he says this, this ministry wasn't mine to begin with. What he says is, a person cannot receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. John responds to these guys, this wasn't mine. I'm not worried about it. It's not mine to grow. It's not mine to worry about if it's shrinking. My job is fidelity. My job is to be faithful. John points out that everything we have is a gift from God, and this is super practical for John. You think about our own lives. Which country are you born into? Which family were you raised in? Which natural gifts have been bestowed upon you at birth? Which breaks have you gotten along the way as you've made your trek through life? John has in mind that he's been the beneficiary of God's unmerited grace and unconditional love. John's early life is detailed in Luke chapter 1. And what you see is that in addition to being miraculously born to an elderly mom, John happened to be a relative of Jesus of Nazareth. And even before he came out of the womb, it was getting pretty clear that he had a calling that had nothing to do with him as a person and how well he was doing and performing as a young man. There was a debate over his name, (laughs) and he got named exactly the way God wanted him to get named. And in this experience that we'll read here from Luke 1, when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and Mary, she came to visit her relative Elizabeth, and then we get our first picture of John's ministry. At that time, Mary, Jesus' mom, got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That baby is John the Baptist. That baby, before he could even see outside the womb, was going, I got something to do. I'm here to proclaim the arrival of Jesus. He was proclaiming Jesus' arrival to his mom when he was in the womb. (laughs) This guy's mission was set. And John the Baptist is able to keep his perspective by first and foremost by visiting and revisiting the graces of God in his life. We have to preach this gospel to ourselves every day, both for our own peace, but also to maintain any healthy grounding in reality. Your business success, your career arc, your notoriety, your abilities and all else in your life is the gift of God's grace to you. Even the diligent work that you may have put in to get where you are is only because God has protected you. He's protected you from harm. He's given you life and breath. And John says, if you want to be able to maintain a healthy, Christ-honoring perspective about life, you have to focus and remember the graces of God. And then his second admonition to us would be to remember the purposes of God. 
John 3, 28 through 30, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist did not forget that his role was to point others to Jesus. And oh, how difficult this is for us to remember. It's hard to keep in our minds the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5.16 that our light should shine before men so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. John reminds them that he'd previously announced he wasn't the Christ, but the forerunner. To reinforce this, he reaches for some powerful wedding imagery to further describe his role as a mere guest at a friend's wedding. He's not the focus. In TV shows like The Office or movies like The Wedding Singer, you see portrayed the awkward moments at weddings when someone who isn't the focus of the wedding seizes the stage to make much of themselves. Michael Scott. Anyway, I've mentioned before that this compulsion to push myself forward, to take front and center so as to get the affirmation and love that my soul craved, was a driving force for much of my life and for a good portion of my ministry until God worked powerfully to break me of this foolishness and set me on a course to begin looking to Him for the assurance of value and love. And I've learned over the years that I can test, and I'd encourage you to do the same, you can test whether you're pursuing being the best or reaching the top or even seeking to be a leader for Jesus, you can test whether you're doing these things for the wrong reasons by seeing how you react when those things are denied you or when those things are taken from you or when those things are given to somebody else that's not you. If it crushes our souls, we must reflect on how misplaced our desires are and then reorient our lives that our, that our hearts would be about finding joy in who Jesus is, to make much of Jesus and to experience what we're craving in a love relationship with him. Our New City Catechism question four asks, how and why did God create us? The answer, God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And this is my favorite part of the, the answer here. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. See, John didn't do it just because it was the right thing to do. In verses 29 and 30, John says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. The pathway to joy is making much of Jesus. And in a real way, Jesus said, there's more joy in giving than receiving. And so we can make application even deep, more deeply into our lives to say, our spouse, our family members, our children, our coworkers, our friends, that the more we work to serve them, the more we work to push them forward, the more we work to increase them and decrease ourselves, there's greater value and joy in that. 
Uh, speaking of decreasing, uh, I've been spending the last two months working out regularly. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things that you get when you join Anytime Fitness is this app that, well, because when you go there, you put this strap and this like thing on you that tells everybody in the gym how hard you're working. I mean, have you seen, it's like a screen that's like, you are a wimp, you know, I mean, and, and so you can tell whether you're working hard or not. It's a good accountability thing. But it also records all the data, and then you get these emails that tell you how you're progressing. And last month, I got this email that effectively tells me at the bottom, you have no status. <laughs> now, I already knew this. And thank you to this app for reminding me. So I, I put my nose to the grindstone. I mean, I'm busting butt. I mean, I'm really trying to make it work. You know, I'm working a program. And then this month, I get a great update. It says, you have reached this status, iron status. And you go, yay. And then underneath it, it says, two more months of this, and we'll move you to bronze. <laughs> I haven't even had five minutes to enjoy being Iron Man, and now they're trying to move me like to be jealous of bronze boy. And you know it's not the end. It's then it's silver and gold and platinum and uranium. And the next thing, I mean, it's never ending. I'm I'm never going to be able to be content. And this is, in many ways, what life in the Western world is like. You get pulled into the pressure of always trying to get to the next rung. And you'll be looked at funny if you are not discontent, if you are content with where you are in life and feel that, the purpose of life isn't just to get bigger and bigger and more influential. People will think that you lack ambition. Many people, particularly those of us in ministry, grieve over the lack or a decreasing level of influence as if that's a bad thing. John flips this upside down. He didn't measure his success by the size of the crowds at his events, but by his faithfulness to God. The exaltation of Jesus through his ministry, the announcing of Jesus is coming to rescue people, that was John's goal, and that was John's joy. John the Baptist would tell us that if we want to enjoy God, if we want to experience a, a perspective in life that is peace-loving and Christ-honoring and eternal in its perspective. Remember the graces of God. Remember the purposes of God. And now the Apostle John is going to weigh in with his first admonition for us, and that is remember that Jesus is God. Verses 31 through 33 the Apostle John writes, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He says it twice. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So John's commentary is going to reinforce his main theme, which is found in the very last verse of John chapter 20, the very last verse of the Gospel of John. He says these things are written that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we may have life in his name. John is telling us 
what he's going to tell us over and over and over and over again. Jesus is God. Don't let any critic of the Bible ever make you think that's a gray area. It is not. If you study the Gospel of John at length, you see from start to beginning, from the first verse of John that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, to the very end when he says what I just said in John 20, verse 31. Jesus is God. When we're discouraged or disillusioned, we can keep a perspective of hope by remembering who Jesus is. Look at, it says, he who comes from heaven is above all. Our Jesus is is not just alive, but he's reigning. Scripture says Jesus lives and reigns. And in some of my darkest moments and times in life, the only truth that I could cling to was the reality of who Jesus was and that he really was resurrected. Times when I've been brokenhearted or depressed, alone and sad, the thought that Jesus had risen from the dead was a real comfort to me. And if you add to that the biblical direction, the biblical teaching about Jesus' current duties on our behalf, there is real peace at our disposal if we'll allow the Holy Spirit of God to capture our daily thoughts and provide the lens for our daily lives. You know what Jesus is doing right now? When he resurrected from the dead, he didn't take like the victory lap, you know, and just wander around letting people praise him. He's actually at work. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for his children. That's what he does. I just need people to pray for me. You do. We do. We're told to pray for each other. But what a thought. Is there anybody that you could think would be a better prayer for you than Jesus? The intercessory work of Christ is what is taking place. Our Savior lives and reigns. He came from above. He's above all. D.A. Carson, in a recent conversation on the Gospel Coalition website, had these thoughts about Jesus' ministry of intercessory prayer that I'd like to share with you. And I quote, The intercessory work of Christ is invaluable to every Christian, for it makes clear that our ongoing acceptance before God is finally grounded in the utter sufficiency of the cross. These important truths are especially needed when believers slip backwards to a kind of works a works theology that tells them they're not good enough to be forgiven or that surrounds them with crushing despair because of moral defeat, besetting sins and afflicted consciences have this in common, that they often destroy our confidence before God, our confidence that we have been forgiven, that we are accepted in the beloved, that the debt has been paid, In all such instances, to understand the nature of Jesus' intercession breeds quiet confidence, the assurance which brings with it our own effective prayers. The Apostle John tells us, for our sake, for our perspective, 
we should remember that Jesus is God. We've been told, remember the graces of God, remember the purposes of God, remember that Jesus is God, and John the Apostle's last admonition to us is remember the mission of God. Verses 34 through 36, for he whom God sent has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is exactly what he told Nicodemus. This is how John reviewed Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus to say, human nature has put us all in the same bind. We are all separated from God. We stand condemned. The wrath of God remains on us. Naturally, Jesus came to save us. And whoever does not believe, according to John chapter 3, will be condemned because we stand condemned already. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And these are the words of God, Jesus. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. And one of those great realities is is that God the Father, God the Son, they, they, they send forth the Holy Spirit. And it says here, without measure, which means generously, like wonderfully, like a rich friend who just can't keep you know, blessing you by giving you stuff. You know, they just have so much resources. They, they love to give their resources away. And the father had demonstrated this generosity by giving it to the son. And through the son, we have this access, a generosity of love, a generosity of provision, a generosity of peace. Even as circumstances sometimes make us feel downcast and sad, we're promised that He who came from the Father is above all, that he loves us, and he has come with a mission to communicate his love to us. We are all impoverished morally and objects of wrath, but that's not the end of the story. God sent his son on a a loving rescue mission to, in our poverty, provide his great wealth and meet our needs so that we could return to him. Last week, Carolyn and I, last weekend, we got to live large for three days in Las Vegas, and then we drove back here on Saturday to be with you all. And I'm telling you, it was fun. In Vegas, let me give you a little snapshot of what we did. Uh, We got to stay for free in the Venetian, which is this five-star hotel on the Strip. Uh, We had a meet-and-greet with... uh, a NASCAR driver named Justin Allgaier, driver of the number seven Chevrolet. Um, we got to go to this party where they had free food and beverages. And on the day of the race, Saturday morning, we got picked up at the luxury hotel and bussed uh, to the track, at the Las Vegas Speedway. And, uh, and while, once we got there, given our VIP access pass uh, that got us everywhere. We could go anywhere we wanted. We went in the drivers. We went into the drivers like inner sanctums. We were in the garages. We were in their like recreation trucks. We were we went up and down pit road. I mean, we were VIPs. It's pretty great. I don't normally live this way, 
Then we were escorted to our skybox, which again had unlimited food. I want you to know I was very disciplined. But they also had unlimited Diet Coke, and I made a fool of myself. <laughs> they gave us radios that we could listen in on and listen in to the driver and his team. And, and it was an amazing experience. We even had access to the roof where we could go up top and watch the whole thing from way above everyone else. You might be asking, Chuck, did you hit the lottery or is PRISM paying you that Joel Osteen kind of money? (laughs) How did you get access to this type of luxury? A high school friend of mine, Rick Brandt, is the CEO of the Brandt Companies. He's the funny guy behind my wife in that picture, and he's pictured there with me. We played basketball together, and... Carolyn's and my access to all that luxury was a gift from him. He's the CEO of an international chemical and fertilizer company, and we haven't spoke a ton over the last, coming up on 40 years since high school. Our 40-year reunion is in five years. We laughed about that. My, My benefit last week was unmerited. It's something that was a gift to me by somebody who called me friend. And I did nothing to deserve that kind of kindness. We were treated like royalty because of somebody else's merits. I had a seminary professor that was fond of saying, we are saved by works. We're saved by Christ's works. You know, salvation in Christ is free, but it didn't come cheap. Jesus had to pay for that. And Carolyn and I didn't drop a penny last weekend in Vegas, but I can tell you somebody did. And this is the beauty of the gospel. We have been given access to the luxury of being the children of God because of the works, because of the merits, because of the wealth of Christ And as you see in this last picture of Carolyn and I, we made it very clear who made all this possible for us. Brant. I have this hat signed by the number seven, Justin Allgaier. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote this in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let us pray.